Hi everyone, Celine Gounder here. I'm the host of In Sickness and In Health. We really appreciate all our loyal listeners, and I'm hoping you can help us grow this community even more. If you like our podcast, text a friend about it right now. The bigger we can grow this community, the more episodes we can do, and the more ambitious our show can be. Thanks for listening. Now, here's the show. Welcome back to In Sickness and In Health, a podcast about health and social justice. I'm Dr. Celine Gounder. This season, we're looking at gun violence in America. I have one case in particular where this uh, Saturday morning, this lady came in and she was dressed in a business suit, you know, very uh, professional looking woman. She walked up to the counter and she looked down and she said, uh, I think I'd like to buy that gun. <laughs> and I, I looked at her and I said, do you really think you should be buying the gun? She immediately broke down started crying. And I, and I said to her, look, I, I just get the feeling that you're buying this gun to do harm to yourself. And I said, I, I don't want this to happen. There are almost 24,000 suicide deaths by firearm in this country each year. These deaths are occurring among gun owners, their kids, and other family and friends. We live in two very different worlds when it comes to guns in the U.S. The people for whom their only experience of guns is as a problem, and the people for whom guns will never be a problem until they are. What can we say to gun owners to help them understand that we care about their safety? How do we make sure that message gets through? I've had a number of them over the years. You just sense something's wrong. Somebody doesn't have any level of experience with firearms, and you just don't sell them a gun on the spot. On today's episode of In Sickness and In Health, we'll speak with gun owners, gun dealers, and gun trainers, and with doctors and public health researchers who found a way to bridge the divide, talk, and work together. Much of this work comes down to having trusted messengers, people who understand the language and culture, who know how to reach the folks who are at highest risk. Healthcare providers too often fail to recognize patients at risk for suicide. I do think sometimes um, healthcare providers, it's like they don't want to open Pandora's box or what they see as Pandora's box. They're not sure what to do next or feel like they don't have things to offer to patients. This is Emmy Betts. She's an ER doc at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. She also studies suicide and injury prevention. Emmy says that even when healthcare professionals know a patient's at risk for suicide, they don't necessarily inquire about access to guns. I think in the case of firearms, there's also an extra layer of maybe fear, uh, you know, not wanting to offend patients, not wanting to get into political arguments, ignorance in terms of not knowing what to say in, if it's a provider who doesn't own a firearm and isn't comfortable with firearms, who they may not know how to ask or what, what to say if the person says that they do have a firearm. Emmy says there's a lot of work going on right now to raise awareness among doctors and nurses, teaching them not just to ask patients about firearms, but more importantly, how to engage patients in these conversations in productive ways. As healthcare workers, we don't just care for patients who look and think and speak just like us. It's part of the job to learn how to cross all sorts of cultural divides, and the language we use is a big part of that. It's about learning how to talk with patients so that they recognize that you respect them, that you respect their individual perspectives and, and 
wishes. Um, and that e even if you don't know everything about whatever culture it is that they're a part of, um, that you are open to learning about it and that you've at least maybe tried to learn some of the key points. In addition to having some understanding of a patient's culture, Emmy says healthcare workers also need to know where to refer patients and what resources and options are available. I think physicians need to learn a little bit, a little bit about the basics, about handguns, um, long guns, storage options, where to send people if they want more information. These conversations are especially important to have with older patients. Suicide rates do go up in the older ages, um, including by firearm, and it, that's particularly true among older men. Suicide is the biggest gun-related risk for aging patients, but it's not the only one. With dementia, it's common to have um, behavioral disturbances, paranoia, hallucinations, aggressive behavior, and so there's a very legitimate concern that an older adult who has is no longer recognizing people, you know, when the family member or the home health care worker comes to their home, it, that they potentially, um, if they were armed, that that could potentially be really dangerous. Conversations about guns can be especially hard to have with older men. Firearms can be a real source of pride, of identity, of a sense of freedom. Losing access to guns can be just as big a blow as having a car taken away. It's a strong part of sort of how they see themselves potentially, and they may feel that losing access to their car, losing access to their firearms is a, is a real blow in that sense. These conversations should ideally start early. I view the provider's role as explaining to families, look, you're gonna need to talk about driving, firearms, kitchen safety, a list of things, and providing resources, but then recognizing that it's probably gonna be really a family decision, um, because again, it's not about confiscation. While doctors and nurses are important points of contact for gun owners in crisis, they aren't the only ones, or necessarily the first. Some would argue that they're not the most effective ones either. There's always going to be that feeling that, you know, if it comes from the healthcare community, uh, it must be anti-gun. This is Ralph D'Amico. You'll get more of his take on the medical community later in this episode. But for now, you should know that he used to own Riley's Sports Shop, the oldest gun shop in the state of New Hampshire. Worked in the firearms industry for 40 years. Uh, prior to that, served four years in the military uh, after graduating from college. I was in the Air Force. I served in uh, first in South Dakota, then Vietnam, and then North Dakota. I had uh, not what you would call the best assignments in the world. <laughs> Riley's Gun Shop is not just a sports shop, but an institution in the state. It was started by Richard Riley in 1953 in Hooksett, New Hampshire. Riley was involved in the political process, especially around firearms legislation. He was even state senator at one point. Ralph worked for Riley for a long time, and in 1987, he and a partner bought the business from him. But they carried on his legacy. He had a strict code of ethics, and he always stressed uh, social responsibility. It was important to him to do the business uh, in, in a fashion that uh, did not bring disgrace and, uh, you know, uh, upon us. He has always said, you know, make sure the person to whom you are selling the firearm is the person who intends to, to be the owner. You know, if you ever sense anything like individuals coming in and, and buy, trying to buy a gun for somebody who says, yes, yes, that's, that's the one, buy me that one, you know, we just shut a sale like that down. 
In addition to looking out for straw purchasers, Ralph remembers Riley would instruct his clerks to look out for people coming into the store, smelling of alcohol or drugs, trying to buy firearms under the influence. Riley, Ralph says, was diligent about reporting suspicious behavior to the local police or the feds. And when he became the owner of the store, Ralph tried to do the same thing. But then one day, in 2009, Ralph received a phone call from a friend. My longtime friend Elaine called, and I hadn't spoken with her for a while. And after a few formalities, she said, um, By the way, were you aware that in the span of six days, uh, three individuals each bought a firearm from Riley's and subsequently took their lives? Ralph was shocked. He remembers thinking that perhaps the suicides were related, like some sort of suicide pact. But no. No connection whatsoever. It really bothered me because my philosophy with my employees was uh, you are never under any obligation to sell anything to anyone. They never worked on commission, so there was never an incentive uh, for them to sell. Their job, Ralph had stressed over and over, was not to make a sale, but to qualify the buyer, to assess how comfortable they were around guns, to screen their behavior, and make sure they were in the right state of mind to be purchasing a deadly weapon. But neither he nor any of his clerks had noticed anything odd about any of these three customers. They said nothing out of line. They they, they displayed all the experience they had. Uh, And then they just left and, and went and took their lives. So those I don't know how we catch. This incident, however, made Ralph realize that while there are some individuals who'll always fly under the radar, perhaps there was more that he and others like him could do to help others. So when Ralph's friend Elaine suggested a way to engage gun shop owners and firearms dealers in suicide awareness efforts, Ralph quickly came on board. Elaine is Elaine Frank. At the time, she was the director of the Injury Prevention Center at Dartmouth College. I should probably pause here to explain how Ralph and Elaine first met. Years before this, Elaine had reached out to Ralph about doing a program around firearm safety. Ralph remembers thinking at the time, mm, somebody from the healthcare community wanting to talk about a program involving firearms. I said, I better get involved so I can hopefully, you know, guide all the good efforts in the right direction without it, the thing becoming inflammatory to the firearms community uh, and ineffective. There's long-standing skepticism that people in healthcare and people in the gun world have about each other. Ralph says he understands why. If I put myself in the shoes of an emergency room doctor in the city of Chicago, I mean, <laughs> that has got to be the nightmare of nightmares. All he deals with is gun violence and people you know, dying and, and injured from gun violence. You know, it's hard for an individual like that to see that there is legitimate use of firearms in a place like New Hampshire, for example. Ralph says that historically, the medical community and the firearms community have never really been able to speak to one another in a meaningful way. Ten years ago, the suicide groups weren't talking about guns, and the gun groups weren't talking about suicide. This is Kathy Barber. She's a researcher at the Harvard Injury Control Research Center, She's also the director of Means Matter, a 
a project aimed at reducing suicidal persons' access to lethal means of suicide. Kathy has an interesting take about why the two sides never engaged on this before. For the suicide prevention groups, I think they felt like, hey, this is too controversial. They felt shut down by doing anything about it because through a pretty remarkable lack of imagination, thought that talking about guns meant talking about gun control. For the gun group's part, I think suicide just wasn't on their radar. Ralph and Elaine remained friends after working together that first time. And now that suicide had touched him and his store so directly, he agreed to work with her again. They started the New Hampshire Firearm Safety Coalition. Armed with postcards and brochures with suicide hotline information, coalition members went out to speak with gun shop owners in New Hampshire, asking them to display the information visibly in their stores. Ralph remembers resistance. I fielded some calls from dealers and they said, hey, what is this? Is this a scam or, you know, I... But in the end, many came around. Almost 50% of them agreed to participate. According to Kathy, that's a great number. I didn't think it was a good number because I cannot understand why someone in the business would not want to minimize the possibility of uh, someone who purchases a gun taking their life. In the beginning, the New Hampshire Firearms Safety Coalition consisted of Ralph, Elaine, a couple clinicians, and a firearm instructor who had witnessed a suicide at a shooting range. Eventually, more people from the gun world, gun stakeholders as Kathy calls them, began getting involved, especially once their monthly meetings got moved from the offices of the National Alliance for the Mentally Ill to Riley's Gun Shop, a place that felt a lot more safe and comfortable to gun folks. The original goal of the coalition was to help prevent suicide following a recent gun purchase or rental. They encouraged gun shops to screen their customers and give them information about the suicide hotlines. But as coalition members learned from one another about how suicide works and about the gun business, they realized... The far more prevalent type, suicides with an existing household gun, hey, we could actually do a lot more good. The coalition realized that gun shops don't just sell or rent guns. They're a trusted source of information about guns, including gun safety. If a gun safety suicide prevention message comes from a gun retailer or firearm instructor. It isn't an anti-gun message. It isn't a message like, oh, you shouldn't have guns or anything like that. If you're worried that somebody might be considering suicide, one way that you could help is to offer to hold on to their guns or help them put their guns into storage until they're feeling better. It's just a, a strategic kind of decision about storage. That was the beginning of the Gun Shop Project, which Kathy's now been working with Ralph and other gun stakeholders on for years. One thing she really appreciates about pro-gun folks, she says, is their ability to think outside the box. They'll just come up with things that never, that people in mental health and, and public health would never come up with. Kathy remembers a meeting she was at once with a man named Clark Apotian. Clark heads up the Utah Shooting Sports Council. He's also an NRA instructor and a gun rights activist. At the meeting, he spoke up and said, I've got an idea for a PSA on suicide. Kathy's reaction? My heart sunk because I just thought, oh my God, I hate PSAs on suicide prevention. Kathy says these PSAs are too much about pessimism and despair. 
She says they contribute to the problem rather than help solve it. But Clark's idea surprised her. He said, here's what I'm picturing. A guy's at a shooting range, puts down his gun and, and turns to the camera and says, Last year I was at my lowest, going through some pretty serious depression. A couple of friends of mine stopped by the house and said they were worried about me. Said they'd feel a lot better if they could hold on to my firearms until things turned around. I think they saved my life. If your loved ones are struggling, talk to them. <laughs> that's like, oh my God, that's a perfect PSA. Kathy loved how clever it was. It has so many things going for it. It shows recovery. It doesn't wait for the person who's struggling to ask for help. It doesn't wait for a disclosure of suicidality. It's a nice bro way of showing that you care. And most of all, it was genuinely welcoming of gun owners. And that was key. When it's only people who don't like guns or who um, are unfamiliar with guns, who come up with protocols for how to talk with um, families and patients about guns. That's not the strongest approach. You know, if you don't trust the messenger, you don't trust the message. As word caught on about the New Hampshire Gunshot Project, other states began reaching out to Kathy and the coalition, looking to organize similar efforts in their communities. The state of Maryland, I believe, was the first state to catch wind of our our project, and they wanted all kinds of information, and we shared it all with them. Battle Axe, Minnesota, during hunting season, they distribute placemats to all the diners that promote this message of putting time and distance between a person at risk for suicide and their guns. But in Tennessee and in Missouri right now, there's statewide gun shop projects. Virginia Lock and Talk has gotten pawn shop owners involved. In Texas, a third-generation rancher has developed an app for families and patients who are at, at risk for suicide that helps them sort through what would be good gun storage options and medication storage options. Currently, there are about 20 states with gunshot projects in place, all inspired by Ralph, Elaine, and Kathy's efforts back in New Hampshire. While there's occasionally pushback from people who think the gunshot project is a Trojan horse for gun control, both Kathy and Ralph say they've seen that, for the most part, gunshot owners, firearms instructors, and gun rights activists are willing to work with the medical and public health community to prevent firearm suicides. And they realize how crucial their involvement is. As I say to people, look, we're not psychiatrists, we're not psychologists. You know, we stand behind the counter. We sell firearms. That's what we know. But we also know that when someone comes in who's obviously not experienced or, or distressed or doesn't ask the right questions or doesn't answer the right questions, you know, you need to be socially responsible and shut that sale down and ask that person, please get some help. And so what's that going to mean? Is it going to misjudge sometimes? Well, maybe. But you know what? He can go to bed at night knowing He didn't sell a firearm to somebody who could have been helped. Kathy says there are lots of ways to deliver suicide awareness messages in spaces welcoming to gun owners, and not just in gun shops. So we had done an audit in New England and Northeast states 
we had volunteers sign up to take basic firearm training. And so out of 20 courses that, that we took, only two of those 20 covered suicide in any way. This matches up with my own experience, taking a gun training course about a year ago. There was no mention of suicide. Kathy's survey paved the way for trying to incorporate education about suicide prevention into firearms training classes. A few years ago, she did a survey in Utah of over a 1,000 firearms instructors certified to teach the state's concealed carry permit classes. She showed the instructors a draft of a five-minute suicide prevention talk she'd created and asked if they would be open to including it in their curriculum. Two-thirds said yes. Key stakeholders in the gun world have the potential to serve as credible, influential messengers, not just about suicide risk and prevention, but about a wider range of gun safety measures. My name is Mark Holly, and I'm a Marine veteran. After spending eight years in the Marines as a military police officer and a combat marksmanship coach, Mark came home to the Twin Cities and started a personal protection and coaching service called Atlas Defense. So we do firearms training and situational awareness for employees and the community. But Mark didn't start Atlas Defense just to teach people how to safely operate firearms. I started my business to educate people about the gravity responsibility that comes with owning a firearm. He's pushing back on the hubris he sees among many of the students that walk through his doors. A lot of times people may have preconceptions based on like movies or video games about how to handle a firearm. If they apply that in real life, there's a much higher chance of a firearms-related accident or negligence around the firearm just due to a maybe a poor attitude that was pre-existing before they even got into training. It's dangerous for anyone unfamiliar with a gun to be operating one. It's even more dangerous when the person handling the gun is unaware of all the ways in which things can go wrong. A gun's easy to use when you're assuming that you're just automatically going to use it in self-defense, you know, because I'm the good guy, so of course I've got the right to use my gun anyway I want to, and my good guy bullets are only going to hit the bad guy. Mark makes it a point to emphasize to his students that they're going to miss most of the shots they make. There's a lot of people that have that idealized version of self that'll rise to the occasion, you know, do the Bruce Willis thing, save the day. Training, Mark says, is central to gun safety. Even in basic training, we didn't fire a live round until I think it was probably about like four weeks into basic training. And we had been spending a lot of time of firearms handling, maintenance, uh, dry fire drills. And dry fire is just where you get used to pulling the trigger without actually shooting to help you stay on target and not worry about the recoil and stuff like that. In class, as a trainer himself, he takes the time to ease students into getting to know their firearms first before they ever start shooting. It's like Mark is trying to convey a certain reverence for guns to his students. I would say probably the most hardening thing that comes out of most of my classes is that even the most hardline, fundamentalist kind of gunner that comes in one of my classes, um, they usually come out of that class with a different state of mind, with a different perception about the firearm. I've had several gun owners that have shook my hand after the class and say, you changed my mind about why we have this class in the first place. And perhaps, if that message is going to stay with them, it has to come from someone like Mark. Who the messenger is, that matters. In our next episode, we'll hear how others are trying to bridge the divide between the medical and public health community and the gun community, bringing the two sides together to prevent suicide. That's next time on In Sickness and in Health.
If someone you know is in crisis or thinking of hurting themselves, do not leave them alone. Remove any firearms, alcohol, drugs, or sharp objects that could be used in a suicide attempt. Take them to an emergency room or seek help from a medical or mental health professional. Call the U.S. National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-TALK. That's 800-273-8255. Or text the crisis text line at 741-741. Another resource for LGBTQ youth is the Trevor Project's Lifeline at 866-488-7386. In Sickness and in Health is brought to you by Just Human Productions. Today's episode was produced by Virginia, Laura, and me. Our theme music is by Alan Vest. Additional music by the Blue Dot Sessions. If you enjoy the show, please tell a friend about it today. And if you haven't already done so, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps more people find out about the show. You can learn more about this podcast and how to engage with us on social media at insicknessandinhealthpodcast.com. That's insicknessandinhealthpodcast.com. I'm Dr. Celine Gounder. This is In Sickness and in Health.